The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. It's good to have all you Bereans here with us. The text we're looking at this morning is 1 John 4, 1 through 6. This text is dealing with testing the spirits, or we could say discerning the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, the first question we have to try to answer here is, what does John mean by spirits? This is the Greek word pneuma, and it has a broad, broad range of meanings, okay? Strong says this, pneuma means a current of air that is breath. So a lot of times that's just what it means. Spirit means your breath, all right, that you're breathing. A breeze, by analogy or figuratively, a spirit that is human. In other words, it's talking about a person. A rational soul, by implication, vital principle. Mental disposition. You know, you ever heard somebody say he's got a mean spirit? Okay, using it in that sense. He says, or superhuman, an angel, demon, or divine. In other words, can be used for God. So that's a, that's a broad range there, people. From a breath to a breeze to God. Now in this text, John refers to the Spirit of God and the spirit of Antichrist. Now, by spirits, he is referring to utterances or people. In other words, he's talking about what people are saying, what these people stand for, but behind that, he says there's a spirit that's promoting this person. So John's readers are called on to test all utterances, all people, to see if what they're saying is from God, or is from Antichrist. Now, John's readers are in a little different position than we are because they were in that transition period, but we today are still accountable to test the spirits. Now, John here speaks of the spirit of false prophets. He says, many false prophets have gone into the world. These prophets are the mouthpiece of the spirit that is inspiring them. And the plural here indicates a reference to demonic or evil spirits behind the human prophets which are inspiring them. Now, John believes that individual persons are inspired or led to confess or deny Christ by spirits. Some reality beyond the human individual. Now, what John is talking about here is spiritual warfare. There's spirits evil spirits, promoting, encouraging false doctrine. There's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, promoting the truth. But this was spiritual warfare. And by spiritual warfare, I mean battling with spirit beings who are non-physical, non-humans. They're supernatural beings. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, Paul is saying to the Ephesians in the first century, their struggle is not with humanity, not mere human power. What they were struggling with, he says, is rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. Now, we know what he's saying here. If you can read, you know what he's saying. The question is, what does he mean by what he's saying? That's where the disagreement comes in. Well, the word rulers here is from the Greek word arche. And it has a wide range of meanings. It means chief, uh, in place or rank. It means beginning. So, rulers. And then he uses the word authorities. Authorities come from the Greek exousia. And it means power, ability, privilege. These titles are used of human beings, rulers and authorities, and of spiritual powers. But notice where he goes next. He says cosmic powers. This comes from the Greek word kosmokarator. It's only used here in the New Testament. 
According to Strong's Concordance, Cosmocrator means a world ruler, an epithet of Satan. Thayer's says it means Lord of the world, Prince of this age, the devil and his demons. This is the only use of this word in the New Testament, but it's used in the Testament of Solomon of spiritual beings. Now, in the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, Cosmocrator means Lord of the world, world ruler. And it occurs in pagan literature as an epithet for Satan, for gods, for rulers, for heavenly bodies. Now, why would Paul use this word that he only uses here in the Bible, but he knows was used in other literature for spirit beings if he didn't have spirit beings in mind? This verse is clearly talking about a battle between the world and the spirit beings. Now, Paul goes on to say, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So these forces are spiritual, they're not human, and they're in heavenly places, which denote the spirit realm, the place where Yahweh dwells. So this is speaking about a battle with spiritual forces who are not flesh and blood. Now, when it comes to spirit beings such as Satan, the devil, and demons, unclean spirits, there are basically three positions that people hold today on this view, okay? Let me give you the three views of spirit beings. Number one, some don't believe in personal devil or demons at all. When the Bible talks about that, it's not talking about a supernatural being. It's talking about your split personality or some kind of nonsense like that. So you can see I don't hold that view, right? <laughs> there is not to them, nor there ever was, a Satan, the spirit beings, or any of that stuff. Okay, They don't believe in any of that. Second position. Some believe that Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real beings that are still very active today. All right, then the third position, the one which I hold, says some believe that Satan, demons, and unclean spirits are real beings, but they were all defeated and destroyed in AD 70 at the return of Christ when judgment took place. Now, we see the reality of the demonic battle as we read the Gospels. For example, look at Mark 1, 23 through 26. It says, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us? Speaking of demons, us demons, plural there, Yeshua of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? The demon is talking here. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Yeshua rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. Now, the demon obeys the words of Yeshua. And Mark is demonstrating here Yeshua's authority over the spirit world. Yeshua will himself later point out what this proved, that Satan in his strength was being defeated. And this could only be happening by the Spirit of God. Look at Matthew 12.28. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he is, the Lord is casting out these demons, again, showing his power over the spiritual world. Now, in order to really understand how these people would have processed this in the first century, you have to understand that in the first century, they saw demonic spirits involved in everything bad. Okay? Kind of like some charismatics do today. All right? If you had a disease, it's a demonic spirit. If you had a tragedy, it was a demonic spirit. If you had a mental illness, it's a demon behind that. There's a book out I read probably 40 years ago called uh, The Diary of an Exorcist. And man, he had demons everywhere. I love two special demons. They were called demon of dry hair and demon of oily hair. And they were tormenting this person, this lady going back and forth. When she tried to treat for dry, oily would come out you know, I mean, it's just, they had a demon behind every doorknob, okay? It's just crazy. But a lot of people, they believe that stuff. And that's the first century. The demons were under every rock. They were responsible for everything. They understood that there was nothing they could do about it. They just had to try to live with it, and it tortured these people. Just to help you understand how desperate they were. They entered into a practice called trepanning. Basically, it meant when a person was alive and they just demon was bothering them so much they just couldn't handle it any longer. They would take and they would drill a hole in their skull so the demon could escape. Parents don't get any ideas, okay? <clears throat> now, 
It does. It doesn't work. Okay. It does not work. But that doesn't sound very pleasant. But that just tells you how bad they were being bothered by these demons. Gives you some idea of the, less, the, the level of desperation that they had. Historians have dug up cemeteries from the first century and found about 5% of the skulls had a hole drilled in them. This was a significant thing to them. So along comes Yeshua, and now all of a sudden there's a solution. The demons are gone. The problem is going away. And they're stunned by that. Suddenly Yeshua identifies himself as the one who can solve their problems. As the one who could remove the demonic spirits. The one who could deal with the issues in their life. Mark says that the word about Yeshua spread immediately. You can imagine these people are being healed from this problem and so the word goes out. This man can heal us. Now what about demons today? Uh, You can understand that depending on who you ask, you're going to get a different answer from all kinds of people. But do we need to be worrying about demons today? Again, it's who you ask. The predominant view in churchianity today is that whatever happened in the Gospels and in the book of Acts is intended to describe Christianity as it ought to be in every age. So, is it normal for us to have problems with demons? I've been a Christian for 45 years and I've never encountered a demon. Some people have made me question that. Okay? But I've never encountered a demon. Not one. All right? So how normal is it? And even when I read the book, now that had me on edge for a few weeks, because <laughs> there was demons everywhere, but, you know, it's not a normal thing. You know, when you see demonic possession or hear of it today, it's always in a country that just doesn't seem to, you know, know all that much about things, all right? Well, let's talk a little bit about demon possession. That's a big issue today, and something we need to get a grasp on. The first thing we need to understand is that most, in most of the New Testament, references about demon possession, it happens in the Gospel. And it represents an outburst of satanic opposition to Yeshua's work in Christ. Okay, You don't see this demonic possession, these demonic outbursts through your Old Testament. You see it in a central location at the time of Christ. We have no reference to demon possession after the book of Acts. We don't have much references in the latter half of the book of Acts. We encounter occult practices, magicians, and others who dabble in dark powers, but seldom an evil spirit that takes over a life. We have no reference whatsoever to demon possession in the epistles, not in any of them. No references in the Old Covenant to demon possession. It seems to be something that happened during the time of Christ and the apostles for the purpose of Christ manifesting power over the spirit world. So it's my position that Satan and his demons were real spirit beings who opposed Yahweh and his people. But through the ministry of Christ, they were defeated and destroyed in AD 70. The Bible says Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. I just believe he was successful at that, okay? The spiritual battle that the first century's Christians faced is over. We're not battling spiritual forces today. But as believers, we are in a battle. All right, We are in a battle for truth. As Christians, we battle the worldview, the regulations of non-believers. But we, 21st century believers, are not fighting against powers, against world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That battle was fought and won by our Lord 2,000 years ago. Now, with that as an intro, let's look at our text. Alright, he says, Beloved. Now, what we're going to find here is there's a contrast between two spirits. Alright, the Spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. He starts out calling them beloved. This is an affectionate term, but he doesn't just use it to show his affection. He uses this term when he wants to get their attention about an important subject. He says, beloved, don't believe every spirit. Now, this is a present imperative with a negative participle, which usually means stop a practice that's already going on. So we could translate this, stop believing every spirit. John's readers were believing the lies of the false teachers. Now, apparently, the false teachers were claiming to speak for God. I mean, that's what they do. They don't come and say, hey, by the way, the devil sent me over here to tell you a few. No. 
They say they're speaking for God and they say they have a special revelation. I've got some new word that no one else knows. I'm going to let you in on a secret. Now, do not believe every spirit, I think, is a word that the American church desperately needs to hear and heed. There is today, sadly, an obvious absence of discernment in the church of God. Every believer should have enough of a grasp of biblical doctrine to be able to discern between truth and error. But most don't. You could come up with some wild, crazy ideas and people will shout, Amen! Preach! Let me give you an example. Our neighbor, the church next door here, they first moved in, I used to pull him up on Facebook and watch him and say, hey, what's going on over here? All right. Well, one time he was speaking uh, back in July, and he was talking about Job. And, and another thing, the preacher continually lets the congregation know that his position in the body of Christ is a teacher. Okay? That's his role. He's a, in other words, he's not like most people. He's teaching people, Okay? He stresses that a lot, and he also stresses his anointing. So, I guess when you're anointed, don't mess with them, you know. <clears throat> well, he reads Job, then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Now, he says... When Job said Yahweh gave and Yahweh taken, has taken away, he was delirious. He was so grief stricken. He was so upset over all that had happened, the loss of everything, including his ten children, that he was so upset he was out of his mind. Because if you understand what he's saying, and he did understand what Job was saying here, was Job had lost his ten children. And what Job is saying here is, the Lord did that. The Lord killed my ten children. And he says, God would never kill anybody. He went on to say, if God kills people, I don't want to serve him at all. I thought, whoa. Let me tell you something, people. This is the spirit of error. Okay? This is an obvious example of the spirit of error. Because first of all, all you have to do to refute this is read another verse. Okay? We stop at 21. Well, let's read, because Job's out of his mind here. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's, he's miscommunicating the truth of, communicating the truth of God. The next verse says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's God's evaluation of Job. Now, this preacher's evaluation of Job is he's messed up. He's delirious. He shouldn't be saying stuff like this. But the Word of God says in all this, Job didn't sin. Job just said, God killed my ten children. And God said, in all this, Job didn't sin. Wouldn't it be wrong to say God did that if He didn't do it? And I want you to notice what Job is doing here. Okay? Worshipping. Job falls on the ground, not cussing out God, not screaming, not having a hissy fit. He's not an American Christian. Okay? He worships. And he said, I came into this world naked. I'll leave naked. The Lord gave me everything I have. He can take away. That's okay. Blessed be Yahweh. Well, this preacher said he was sinning. But God said he wasn't. Now, let's look at the next chapter. He's talking to his wife now because his wife said, curse God and die. Just a good, faithful woman. You know, Proverbs 31, woman here. All right. Curse God and die. And he said, you speak as one of the foolish women who speaks. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? The word evil there, you know what it is? Hebrew? It's ra. You know what ra means? Evil. <laughs> Most translations have changed that. Okay, because they don't like that. You can't put evil in sentence with God, all right? So he's saying to his wife, Lord, we get all kinds of things from God. We're happy when God gives us things. But when things go don't go our way, it's from God too. 
And again, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So that's God's evaluation of Job. Now let's jump to the end of the book. And Yahweh had spoken these words to Job. Yahweh said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends. God was mad at Job's comforts. Why? Watch what he says. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Interesting. So when Job accused God of killing his ten children, he was right. That's what happened. Job spoke what was right about God. Like I said, all you have to do is read the next verse. But here's someone saying, Job is messed up because his children got killed and God never killed anybody. And I stopped and I thought, have you never read your Bible? Any of you know any references to God killing anybody? Give me a reference. Okay. Korah. Let's go back further. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. What happened in Genesis? God killed everybody. Okay? Genesis 6.17 For behold, I will bring... God is speaking. I will bring a flood of waters on the earth. Why? To destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. He says, God never killed anybody. And I thought, wow, he never heard of the flood. All but eight people he killed. All but eight. How about, ever heard of Nadab and Abihu? The sons of Aaron? It was their ordination day. They're being ordained as priests. Exciting day, right? And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took the censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before Yahweh. They were using an incense they shouldn't be using, which he had not commanded them. Now watch what happens. And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. Who killed those two? The fire came from Yahweh. How about Egypt? Anybody ever heard of what happened to the firstborn sons in Egypt? So Moses said, thus says Yahweh. Okay, God's talking. About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Later, God kills the whole Egyptian army. He parts the Red Sea. The the Israelites go across on dry land. They get on the other side and they're watching and the sea comes back and God just wipes out the whole army. He drowns them all. God never kills anybody. If God kills people, I don't want to serve them. Wow, that's just, you know. 2 Kings 17.25 At the beginning of their dwelling there, They did not fear Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh sent lions among them, which killed some of them. You ever heard of Ananias and Sapphira? Acts chapter 5, they lied to the Holy Spirit. What happened? They're dead. Buried them. They buried them. Buried the husband and the wife come in. Hey, did what your husband said, was that true? Oh, she said, oh yeah, that was true. Boom. Okay, you can bury the next one. How do you think? And it said beer came upon the whole... Can you imagine? Anybody want to stand up and lie in the church? <laughs> no. So why would a preacher say that God never killed anybody? And why would all the people sitting out there go, Amen! Praise the Lord! Instead of somebody saying, Oh, excuse me! You ever heard of the flood? It's because... I'll tell you why. It's because he's a health, wealth preacher. And God only does... What is good in that man's eyes? Because that's the health, wealth, gospel. God is your personal genie. He's there to meet your every need, to take care of you, whatever you want. Here's what's happened. He has created a God in his own image that is not the God of the Bible. And that violates the second commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's putting another God before the God of the Bible. Some God he's invented who doesn't hurt anybody. Despite what all the Bible teaches. Okay. Let's go back to our text. Do not or stop believing every spirit. 
I think one of the reasons for believers' biblical ignorance today is that most Christians do not read their Bible. And when you don't read it, you're ignorant of it. If all you get from a Bible is some preacher, what he says, or, you know, you do our daily bread. You know, it's cracks me up. Some people think they're doing devotions. Our daily bread. You got a half a verse of scripture, someone's opinion of it, and read the Bible itself. Most Christians have never read it. And another reason that there's so much biblical ignorance is there are very few pulpits today that engage in expository consecutive teaching of the Word of God. They just don't do it anymore. You know why they don't do it anymore? People don't want it. People don't want it. So they give the people what they want. That's the idea. Right? I mean, the purpose of having a church is to get all the people you can get in the building, right? That's not the purpose. Someone's doing it wrong. In the majority of churches, you're going to get a topical sermon from different parts of Scripture every week, and they're usually plucked out of context. I told you this before, when we were younger, after we moved down here, we'd go back home, we'd go to a Baptist church there. When you're Baptist, you go three times a week, right? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. We went three times, heard the same message all three times, different Scriptures every time. <laughs> That's like, Kath. This is the same message we heard, but it's a whole different scripture that he read. In other words, you know, the message just fits with whatever, you know. The message was get saved, get saved, get saved. So if you were saved, you were wasting your time being there, basically. But that's the problem, people. We don't, there's no encouragement. There's, we're not told to read our Bibles. We just don't think that's important, I guess. And the Bible is not being proclaimed anymore. It's just not. He says, test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Now, this test the spirits is a present active imperative. This is a necessity for every believer. But during the first century, when the spiritual war was going on, God helped them out a little, but he gave them a gift, a spiritual gift to help with this. 1 Corinthians 12.10, to another, he's talking about spiritual gifts here, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. So there were people in the first century that had these gifts. They could tell that's a lying spirit. They could tell that. It was a spiritual gift. But listen, even when it was a spiritual gift, it was a responsibility of every believer. Now, it's my conclusion that spiritual gifts ended in AD 70 because the spiritual battle ended in AD 70. So we didn't need these spiritual gifts anymore. They didn't need the gift of discerning spirits because and the gift of powers that's also listed there was a gift to overcome demonic spirits. And those gifts ended because the age closed. The charismatic gifts of the Spirit were for the last days, according to Acts 2, 16 through 20. The last days began at Pentecost and they ended at AD 70. The gifts were to continue until the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. When the Lord returned, judgment on Jerusalem, the gifts ended. The battle was over. You know why there's so much confusion today about spiritual gifts? Because there isn't spiritual gifts today. And people will give you a little quiz and you can take the quiz and find out what your gift is. I gave that quiz to a friend of mine who's not a Christian. He's a teacher. Guess what gift it showed up he had? The gift of teaching. Oh, well, let's get you to church because obviously you're not even a Christian, but you have the gift of teaching. People, I think we're all made by God the way He wants us to be with our abilities and our talents, but spiritual gifts, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, are gone. They were for the last days. When the last days ended, so did the gifts. That's why so many believers have no clue what their gifts are. <laughs> because they're not for today. You don't have to worry about it. Don't even bother taking the test. Alright? Test the spirits. The word test here is dakimazo. According to the third edition of Bauer Lexicon, the verb means to make a critical examination of something. People, we don't do this today. We just, we're trying to be nice, okay? We're in a political climate where we just, you know, we have to be nice about everything so we don't want to dare question anybody. Test the spirits. Critical examination of something to determine is it genuine, is it true, is it right? The word is used in metallurgy of testing metals to see their strength or to see their purity. It was also used metaphorically of testing people before they were assigned to prominent tasks. That's a great idea. <laughs> Test them to see if they're qualified to be there. 
Well, how were they to test the spirits? Well, they were to test everything. They, by the teachings of the apostolic circle. Now, when I say the apostolic circle, I'm talking about the apostles and those in that circle who were teachers, who were apostolic delegates or others that weren't strictly apostles, all right, but they were part of that circle. John Eliezer, Lazarus, was part of that circle, all right? They were to test everything by what the apostles were teaching. They didn't have a Bible. So they had to orally remember, okay, he told us this, we got to remember this. They were doing that. Now for us, how do we test the spirits? The same way by the apostolic circle, but we have that written down, don't we? It's right here. This is how you test them, okay? You take the Bible and you say, that doesn't line up, okay? Preacher, what you're saying about Job doesn't seem to fit with what the scriptures say about Job. Okay? We're to test them by the Word of God. The most important thing that a church can do is not have an Awana program, not have a youth program, not have budget, you know, finance raising. I get so many things in the mail. How to have a financial campaign. I don't want to have a financial campaign. I've come out of a church that did that. It made me sick every time they did it. He, the preacher built a chest of Joe Ash, drilled holes in it and put it up front and had the congregation get up and march around and put money in the chest. I've seen so many tricks, you know. I think the average person thinks that when you go to seminary, the whole thing of seminary is to teach how to get people's money from them. You know, it's sad. <laughs> but that's not the church's calling. The church's calling is to teach the Word of God. Look at 1 Timothy 3.15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. People, the idea here is that the church's mission is to hold up the truth for everyone to see. The church is to support and display the truth of God. We're not the source of truth. The Bible is. We're to support it and display it. The Bible's God's word and we are to display that. I don't believe the church's mission has changed. I think we're still to be a pillar and supporter of the truth. This is only done through faithfully expounding the truth of God's Word. That's the church's calling. But it's not working today. We're in a day of entertainment, so the church has adapted to the new culture and puts on a show. And you've got to be really careful what you say. Because if you say something people don't agree with, what do they do? They leave. First thing they do is stop giving, then they leave. Because they don't agree with you. So you got to be careful. You don't want to offend people. Because if your goal is to build a huge church, you got to just be nice. So you know my goal is not to build a huge church. I'm not nice. <laughs> the church's job is to display, to uphold the truth. And the believer's job, your job, is to be like the noble Bereans and to search the scripture to see if what is said is true and accurate. Years ago, I used to listen to a preacher out of uh, Texas called R.B. Theme. Theme said this, the Brians were jackasses. They had no business checking up on the preacher. Why would he say that? Exactly. Were the Brians out of line? To check up on the message that was being preached by Paul. And Paul was an apostle. Paul goes, hey buddy, I'm an apostle. You Bereans get it. You're acting. Just believe what I'm telling you. He said they were more noble. Because they did that. Theme said this because he wanted his people blindly to believe whatever he said. It was a form of psychological manipulation. Listen. False teachers don't want you checking up on them. False teachers don't want to be questioned because they don't usually have answers. Okay? So that's why they do that. He's, he goes on to say, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, John especially has in mind here the false teachers who left the church and were drawing others after them. We saw this earlier in chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. Children, it's the last hour. And just as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many antichrists appeared. From this we know, it's the last hour. That was written 2,000 years ago, right? It's the last hour. We're still in the last hour? That's a long hour. 
Okay? They went out from us. These false teachers, he said, they went out from us. Now, the us here is the apostolic circle. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown they are not with us. Okay? They're not part of us. They've gone out into the world. The false prophets, as having gone out into the world, appears to be a direct reference to the secession of these opponents in 2.19. And he uses the same verb here, ex erkamai, which means to depart, to go out. It's used in both places, in 2.19 and here. And not only that, but the same verb occurs in John 13.30 as a description of the departure of Judas Iscariot. So warnings about false prophets operating within the Christian community are found in several places in the New Testament. I mean, this is something that's common if you're familiar with the New Testament. Over and over, the writers are warning you. There's false teaching out there. Yeshua warned, Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Okay, people, sheep's clothing is not talking about this. Okay? That's not what the idea is here, alright? This picture is from Aesop's fable, okay, where the hungry wolf, he comes upon a sheep carcass and he, he takes the carcass and covers himself because he wants to get in and get closer. Listen, when a shepherd was watching the flocks on the hillside out there, his garment was a sheepskin garment. It was worn with the sheep, the skin outside and the fleece inside. And the sheepskin mantle became the uniform of the prophets, alright? Just like the Greek philosophers wore the philosopher's robe. It was by that mantle that the prophets could be distinguished from other men. But sometimes that clothing was worn by those who had no right to wear it. There were those who wore the prophets' clothing, but they were not prophets of God. They were false prophets. So it wasn't so easy to distinguish them like this, okay? That wouldn't fool too many people, I hope. Alright, so Yeshua warned people about false prophets. Like Yeshua, John... And John, Paul also warned people of demonic aspect of false teachers. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul warned that these men disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Servants of righteous people, you've got to understand this. You know, you think a, a false prophet's going to come out and say, By the way, what I'm going to say to you is really crazy. It's off the wall. No one believes it. I'm of the devil, but please buy into this. No. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers. But look, they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul warned the Ephesian elders. He called them together in Acts 20. And he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now watch what he says. And from among your own selves, your elders, from the elder group, will arise men speaking twisted things. And draw away disciples after them. Peter warned of false prophets. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, to understand John's instruction to test the spirits, we need to place this in the context of the Johannian church in the first century. People then met in homes, all right? They were house churches. That's where they met for worship. That's where they met for fellowship. Look at 2 John 1.10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, all right, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now, he's not saying don't let him come in for coffee. The house was the house church. Don't let him come in there. They're teaching false doctrine. So these scattered communities didn't have immediate access to scriptures or to these authority figures. They couldn't just, you know, text Paul, hey, Paul. These guys are saying this. What do you think? No email. They couldn't communicate the way we easily do. And apparently John set emissaries to communicate with the churches, according to 3 John 5-8. through Sometimes these emissaries carried letters, just like these epistles we're reading right now. These congregations had been glad to welcome John's traveling ambassadors, but there were also false prophets 
who, like the emissaries of John, would have claimed to speak under the truth of inspiration. They could show up, hey, John sent us. You can't call John and check. You can't text him. It's going to be a long time before you actually get in contact to find something out. So he said, you got to be careful. you got to test the spirits. you got to test what they're saying. Ray Steadman had an interesting comment here. He says this, It's significant this warning comes in the midst of John's discourse about love. Because false spirits tend to make a great deal of the subject of love. Every cult, every deviant group, every false movement makes its appeal in the name of love. You know why that is? Because if you start questioning them, if you start criticizing them, that's not very loving. You're not supposed to do that. You're judging. Judge not, lest you be judged. You're supposed to love. And so they don't want to be questioned. Believer, we need to test the spirits because there's a lot of false teaching going on out there. Anywhere from the New Age movement to the Masons to the Mormons, every one of them try to fit under the umbrella of Christendom. And there's so many, such a variety of opinions in the church. And it, not all these opinions, of course, someone's right and someone's wrong, but some of them are not areas we need to get all bent out of shape over, okay? They just, they're not significant, but many of them are. There's a lot of liberals out there that deny the supernatural. They deny the, they're Bible teachers at Bible colleges. And they deny the miracles. I heard one who wrote, when Yeshua walked on water, he said there was exceptionally dense lily pads in that area. I thought, dog, those are some strong lily pads. You know, you could dance right across the top of them. They're ecumenists that want us to join all together. doesn't matter what you believe, but we just all join together to hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Then there's the charismatics who want to add to the Bible new revelations. So well, God told me this. Well, let's write that down. Who's right? How can we find out who's right? How do we get to establish who's right and who's wrong when all these different voices are coming at us? Is there a test? Is there a way that we can tell who's right and who's wrong? He said, look, you got a spirit of God and you got a spirit of Antichrist. So how do we tell the difference? Well, the test which he gives to his readers relates to what the secessionists taught. Listen to me. It's a doctrinal test. John did not say we can tell the false spirits by their works. He didn't say that. He said, test their doctrine. Let me show you something. So the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Yeshua is Christ has come in the flesh. It's from God. That's a doctrinal test. Every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. Again, a doctrinal test. This was the acid test of a false prophet under the Old Covenant as well. Deuteronomy 13, 1-5. Now, according to Yeshua, false prophets were to be tested by their fruits. Right? We all know this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, we all know that. And, you know, you hear people being fruit inspectors. I'm just checking out the fruit. That's fine, but do you know what the fruit is? Are you looking at their life? Are you looking, got any grapes hanging around anywhere? You got any, you know, melons coming off you? Listen, contrary to popular opinion, this has nothing to do with their works. Yeshua is telling them to check what they say. Let me show you that. Matthew chapter 12, 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Okay, same context. We got that. We got trees. We got fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you're evil? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tree is known by its fruit. And then he says, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What are you giving account for? Your words. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This text proves the fruits 
are what they say. It's not what they do, what they say. Their behavior doesn't set them apart because, you know, you don't maybe know what their behavior is. The thing that sets them apart is the message. They're teaching something that doesn't line up with the Word of God. Every spirit that confesses Yeshua, the Christ, has come in the flesh, is from God. Now, every spirit that confesses here is a present, active, indicative, which points to a continuing profession. They keep, yeah, they're continuing this profession. Now, the Greek here confesses homologeo. It's a compound word from the same and to speak. It means to say the same thing. So every spirit that homologeo says the same thing about Christ that the Bible says about him, they're from God. Everyone is saying the same thing about Christ that the apostolic circle taught. And now that the Word of God teaches about Christ, that He is God in the flesh, is confessing, therefore, the truth that is taught in the Scriptures. This is an essential doctrinal test, people, of the false teachers. The teachers that John was combating in this book. The, quest, the test is this. What do you think of Yeshua the Christ? The test hasn't changed, people. This is a criteria that eliminates a host of heresies. When John states Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh, he's referring not only to his true deity, but also his true humanity. The docetists taught that matter is evil. Thus, Yeshua was only a spirit being who seemed to be a real man. So, you got the docetic saying, he's not even real, he's just a kind of a phantom. Then you had the Serinthian Gnostics, who John was probably combating here. They taught that Yeshua was just a man. One group taught he wasn't a man, the other taught he was a man. But a divine emanation came upon him at his baptism and left before his crucifixion. Therefore, Yeshua was not literally the Christ, the Son of God. They believed that he was a sort of a phantom. He only appeared to be God's Son, not literally so. But right away we see that this eradicates this false teaching that's going on here. Anyone that does not believe that Yeshua, the Christ, has come in the flesh is not from God. John says, Yeshua the Christ has come in the flesh. The perfect tense affirms that Yeshua's humanity was not temporary. His humanity is permanent. This is not a minor issue, people. Yeshua is truly one with humanity and one with God. Has come implies a pre-existence as the eternal Son of God, Yeshua stated His own pre-existence when He talked to the Jews. This is a major issue, people, because people want to talk about, oh, Jesus, but who is Jesus? They don't have the same meaning as we have when we talk about it. Is He God? Well, no. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses tell you, well, He's a God, not the God. Okay? Look what Yeshua said, John eight fifty eight. He said to them, the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. You know what I am is? Remember Moses met with God and he said, who, who should I say sent me? And God said, Ehia, Asher, Ehia. I am who I am. And that's what he is saying before Abraham was, I am. Yeshua is saying, I'm God. When I hear someone say, Yeshua never claimed to be God, I think you are a moron and you never, you're not familiar with the Bible at all. Am I not being PC? (laughs) John begins the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jehovah's Witnesses Bible add a word in there. They say the Word was a God. There's no justification for that at all. But see, when you want to invent your own doctrine and invent a Bible that goes with it, okay? And you'll be good, okay? So the first test you want to have for any teacher is their Christology. What is their doctrine of Christ? And listen, the doctrine of Christ presupposes the doctrine of the Trinity. I've had people say, the Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible. There's a lot of things that aren't mentioned in the Bible. It doesn't mean they're not true. Okay? If you have somebody who denies the Trinity, then you have a problem because Yeshua can't be God in the flesh the second person of the Trinity in the fullness of what the New Testament teaches about Him. In fact, there, if in fact there's no Trinity. Notice what John says in his second epistle. We'll get to this eventually. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you, for, be with us from God the Father and from Yeshua the Christ, the Father's Son. 
So you got the Father and you got the Son in truth and love. He goes on to say in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and antichrist. He's not beating around the bush. They're a deceiver. They are antichrist if they don't teach this doctrine. 2 John 1.9 Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. In other words, if people are not teaching this doctrine, that Christ came in the flesh, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. But if you don't, you do not have God. If your doctrine is off on Christ, you don't have God. You don't honor the Father unless you honor the Son. And you don't honor the Son if you don't honor the Father. You can't take one and leave the other. No. John chapter 5 is so clear on that. Yeshua said, you honor me, you honor the Father. How could He say that? Because He's God. Listen, to believe the wrong thing about Christ is to perish. To not believe in Yeshua the Christ, the man who was Yeshua, but also the Christ who came from the Father as being pre-existent Son, taking upon Himself human flesh, like our flesh, apart from sin, dying on a cross, is to deny the faith. For you deny the incarnation. And by denying the incarnation, you deny the atonement. For He had to be flesh and blood to die and atone for our sin. You deny the resurrection which gives us new life because it was not a physical resurrection if Christ didn't come in the flesh. To deny that Yeshua is true God and at the same time true man is to deny the Christian faith. To deny either Yeshua's deity or his humanity is to deny that he's our Savior. If he were not God, he would have been a sinner and his death on the cross would, could only, if it was possible, atone for his own sins. If he were not a man, he couldn't have assumed our sins on the cross, according to Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 17. Thus, faith in him to save from sin would be worthless. Thus, any teaching that denies that Yeshua is the true God and true man, that as the second person of the divine trinity, Yeshua came, he took on the form of human flesh in the incarnation, is the doctrine of Antichrist. And that's what they were denying. They were denying this. And John said, here's the test. Any system that denies the deity of Christ anything from Christian science to Islam, anything that denies the true nature of Yeshua the Christ is a spirit of error. Many of the cults deny that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in the Lord Yeshua and all His deity. The Mormons, the Jehovah Witness, they all have the same idea, the oneness group. They deny some aspect of the personality of the Godhead. Yeshua's personality or the Godhead's three personalities. Then there are the liberals. Many of them in theological circles, seminaries, even Bible college, they're saying that Christ was not God and neither did He claim to be. Like I said, that's just plain ignorance of Scriptures. Ignorance of the original languages of the text. Yeshua, in so many ways, said He was God. Over and over and over. They teach us that there's other ways that you can be right with God than through Christ. He's not the only mediator. They're wrong, people. They're wrong. Read John chapter 5. Alright, verse 3 says, But every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. That's simple. If they don't teach this doctrine, they're not from God. Who are they? Well, this is the spirit of Antichrist. What you heard is coming and now is in the world. John did not say that every spirit that denies Yeshua, but every spirit that does not confess Yeshua. See, often heretical teachers mask its deviations from the truth by simply failing to affirm important biblical truth. Rather than proclaiming Yeshua is not the Christ, they just fail to say He is the Christ. They just want to have some nebulous idea about that. That's why pin them down. Ask them biblical questions. Verse 4, Little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than He in the world. Overcome here is from the Greek word nakao, conquer. According to Strong, it means to subdue, to conquer, to overcome, to prevail. He uses nakao six times in 1 John. He uses it 11 times in Revelation, once in the Gospel. By overcome them, John means that his hearers have resisted the fake teaching because they know the truth. The Holy Spirit is within them, and they have the power 
to overcome this false teaching. The Spirit protects them. And listen, the Spirit protects us through the Word of God. Whether it be oral to them or written to us. Because it's in there that God is revealed. It's not just like, well, I'll just let the Spirit lead me. Okay, that's good. Get in the Word of God so He can. Okay? People, the Word of God is the measure measure by which we test the spirits. It's, it's easier for us now. Like I said, they believed they had to hang on to the oral tradition. What they heard, what was passed down. They very rarely got a hand, their hands on the Scripture. We got a book right here. All we have to do is read it. Spend a little time studying it. It can be overwhelming at first, but I'll tell you what, the more time you spend in it, the more excited you'll get about it, the more you'll learn from it. The thing is so important about this book, people, in this book, God reveals Himself to us. You want to know God? You want to love God? You can't do it apart from this book. Okay? You just can't do it. That's the measure. So we need to diligently, guess what? Read the Word. Study the Word. We need to live in dependence on the Holy Spirit to teach us, to help us to understand the Word. Then we'll be able to overcome false teachers because we know what the truth is. See, that's the thing, people. When you know the truth and you hear a false thing, you're like, mm, that doesn't sound right. And then maybe you got to go do some work and dig it up and say, see, I didn't think that was right. This doesn't sound right here. Okay? He says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's an emphasis on the indwelling deity. The phrase he who is in the world refers to Satan. He who is in them is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He's greater than the Spirit. These false spirits are going to be overcome. Now, since John issues warning to his readers against being taken by these false teachers, he obviously believed that it was possible for them to get taken by these false teachers. And I think it's possible for a believer, if you're sitting under bad teaching and you're not checking it out, you just start believing what you hear and you think it's true. Until you're enlightened by the truth. But again, if you're if we spend time reading our Bibles and get to know them, it's a safeguard. Verse 5, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. The world listens to them. Listen, those who are from the world will be heard and accepted by others who are in the world because they're saying what they want to hear. Ah, that's good. Amen, amen, amen. They're preaching false doctrine and people are saying amen. Because those in the world hear them. The world listens to them. And while the secessionists are from the world and listen to the world, the author and his community are from God and they listen to God. And they don't listen to them. He says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Now, most English translations reflect the Greek text, which begins verse 4, 5, and 6 with emphatic pronouns. You, they, we. Three distinct groups are intended here. You is the readers. The the people John is writing to. They is the secessionists. And we is referring to the same group designated as we in the prologue, the first four verses, which is the apostolic circle. Now some understand the we here of verse 6 to refer to all believers. Okay, We are from God. But it stands in opposition to they of verse 5. And so it's better to interpret it as referring to the apostolic circle. We, the apostolic circle, are from God. And the one who knows God listens to us. He who is not of God does not listen to us. Listen. When John speaks of us here collectively in verse 6, he's speaking as a representative of the apostolic circle. Let let me explain it this way. How does this sound to you? We are from God. Okay? Whoever knows God listens to me. If I, as an individual, was saying this, whoever whoever knows God listens to me. Does that sound right? Does that sound right? Why? Does that sound a little bit arrogant? If you listen to me, you're from God. Okay? (laughs) You know... What he means is all who know God will accept the teaching of the apostolic circle found in the New Testament. That teaching. Those who are not of God will reject that testimony. John Stott points this out. He says this, Whoever knows God listens to us would be the height of arrogance if he were speaking as an individual. 
But the apostles were entrusted with the special authority to lay the foundation of the church through their witness and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the apostolic teaching preserved in the New Testament. Thus, the standard by which to judge anyone, including our own spirit discernment, is what is the person's response to the apostolic teaching about Yeshua the Christ as found in the New Testament. It says, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, the reference to two spirits. And this is reminiscent of the teaching about the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood in the Qumran literature. Indicating that the author was familiar with that literature and he figured his readers were also. Believers, understand this. None of us will listen to the message of Christ unless the Holy Spirit overcomes our resistance and gives us ears to hear. Acts 16.14 One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Yahweh opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. See, every believer owes his orthodoxy to the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. You know, why do we hear God? Because we're of God. He's given us His life. If we stand with Christ, listening receptively and confessing loyally, it's because the Holy Spirit is greater than other forces in the world. And He has made us conquerors. He's overcome our blindness and hardness of our hearts through His gracious calling. Test the spirits. So how do we, believers living today, test the spirits? Believers, we're to test everything by the Word of God. Okay, everybody has a Bible. Everybody probably has tons of these things on your phone, your computer, laying around your house. We have them, but we have to read them. Okay, because they're not going to do any good. You can't put it under your pillow at night and hope it'll soak in, okay? That would be nice, wouldn't it? But no, it takes a, it takes a little bit of work. It's like we want to know, but we just don't want to put any work in. We are to test everything by the Word of God. So, I, so my advice to you, to me, to all of us would, let's get familiar with our Bible. Let's read it. Let's study it. Let's be at home in it. You know, when somebody mentions the Scripture, we should go, ah, that's in Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, I know. That's, you know, you're reading through the Tanakh and the Old Testament and you come across something and you go, hey, Paul said that in Ephesians chapter 2. Because you're familiar with it. I mean, I think if we really believed that the Bible was the Word of the living God, we'd give it more attention in our lives. I know I quit preaching and gone to meddling. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the privilege to look at your word. Lord, there are so many false prophets out in the world. I pray that you would give us a spirit of discernment, Lord. That we'd be familiar enough with the word of God to check, to test. Help us, Lord, not to believe what we hear without testing it, without validating it, without examining it and saying, yes, that is true. Help us, Lord, not to hold up personalities, hold up men to such a place where we don't examine what they say. God, give us a heart of Bereans. May we be noble in our search for the truth. Lord, we love you. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? Gary? Reference to the Jehovah's Witness interpretation of John 1 1. How many uh, manuscripts are there? And do any of them have any indication of a, could be another word, like just a a jot or tittle? Alright, Gary's question is about Jehovah's Witness translation. First of all, you all realize we don't have any original autographs, okay? You know what I mean when I say that? We don't, none of the, the New Testament that the apostles wrote, we don't have any of those. We have copies. Alright? But we have thousands of copies. And we compare copies with copies. There is nothing. You know, the Jehovah Witnesses have taken and added. They, if you want to understand this, go back. I did a teaching on John 1 1 and just dealt with this whole subject because they're adding to the Word of God. He was a God. That just goes against the whole Bible. Because, like I said, the Lord's very clear on this. Okay? From, you know, all through the Tanakh, the, the servant of the Lord that was coming, you know, who was divine, you know, who was God, to the New Testament where Yeshua keeps claiming to be the I am, 
He's God. You know, when the Lord is in the New Testament, I think it's in Luke when he's talking to Zacchaeus, you know, and he tells Zacchaeus, come on down. He says, I come to seek and save the lost. That's right out of Ezekiel where God the Father says that. I've come to seek and save the lost. And Yeshua says, I've come. And you're like, wait a minute, who are you saying? He's saying, I'm God. God the Son in human flesh. 